Turn to Luke chapter 1. Christmas is upon us. I don't know about you, but um, my tendency can be just to slide through the holidays. Busy with all that the season brings, whether traveling or gift buying and wrapping, people to see, maybe some parties to attend, eating and cooking, cooking and eating. Uh, And if I'm honest, my soul can tend to get a little thinner during this season, a little neglected and malnourished. Uh, It shows up when I get burdened by it all. You know, ready for Christmas to be gone until next year when I can sort of just slide through another one. Maybe we would never say it that way, but I think many of us have thought those things and, and may feel those things from time to time. Yet it doesn't have to be that way. The Christmas season will likely stay busy for most of us, but it can be a joy-filled, in fact, it's intended to be a joy-filled celebration rather than an exhausting burden. Though, not if we neglect our souls. It is the truth that fuels our joy and our strength, uh, fuels our love for God and others, which is precisely what Christmas is an opportunity to do. So, for the next four weeks in class, we're going to spend some time in the Gospels, thinking about some of the things that surround the birth of Christ. Uh, My hope is simple, that our meditations in here will extend out into our private devotional lives, into our family gatherings, that this Christmas might truly be a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-fueled celebration, uh, that we might come out on the other side of Christmas with, with our hearts and souls fat and full and overflowing and joyful um, flowing into the new year. So this four weeks is simply an effort, just not, it's really for me, and maybe you can identify, but uh, just an effort not to slide through the holidays, not to take it for granted, but to engage with the Lord. I think there are things that we will consider here Uh, that can fill us with hope and joy and peace and believing that will last throughout the year, at least fuel us in that direction. So let's pray to that end, and uh, we'll get started. Father, we come again, and we know, Lord, that you never tire of hearing our prayers. Uh, Our heart's desire is to glorify you in all that we do, and Lord, particularly around this great holiday uh, where we celebrate the coming of your Son. So we ask that you would use the truths that we consider over the next few weeks to uh, fill us with good things. Lord, help us to uh, have joy and hope uh, this Christmas and that that joy and hope of the Christmas promise would fuel our lives for the year to come. Uh, We ask that you would bless our studies and our time together and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at a couple, few different passages over the next few weeks. Um, I'm going to start today in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. We may be here for a couple weeks. It's one of my favorite passages to go back to this time of year. Follow as I read Luke 1, 26 and following. This is the Word of God. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age was also conce- has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Again, we're, not, uh, we're going to spend a couple weeks here in this passage. We're not going to cover everything today. Uh, we're looking at the announcement of the Incarnation, when the eternal Son of God became a human being. So the first thing I want us to think about here is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Uh, we get a glimpse of that throughout this passage. Verse 31 says He is to be the Son of Mary. Verse 32, he is called the Son of the Most High. Son of a woman, Son of God. Verse 31, conceived in the womb of Mary. Verse 35, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Man and God. Verse 32, Jesus is called the Son of David. Verse 35, again, he's called the Son of God. Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. He has both a divine nature and a human nature in one person. Uh, We get a good glimpse of this in our passage, and then this is one of the major themes that we can track throughout the Gospels. He's both human and divine. In terms of his humanity, he was born as a baby. His mother nursed him and changed his diapers. He got hungry and ate. He got thirsty and drank. He slept, Uh, although we don't have an example of him using the bathroom. We can infer that he used the bathroom He probably got stomach aches and headaches. His feet hurt from walking. Uh, And yet he never ceased in all of this to be God in terms of his his divinity. In Luke we see that he was announced to be the Son of God before his birth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Elsewhere in John and in Colossians it says that uh, Jesus was there in the beginning before the foundation of the world. And not only was he there, but he created everything. Everything was created through Him, and without Him, nothing was created. At His baptism, He was attested to be the Son of God by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit descended on Him like a dove, and God the Father spoke from heaven, said, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then there are the miracles. There are the I Am statements. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. And culminates in Jesus simply saying, I am which was the name Yahweh, His personal claim to be Yahweh, uh, God Himself. Jesus is fully God, fully man. 
God became a man in Jesus Christ. It was interesting to learn in my recent history of Christianity class that many of the ancient heresies in the first few centuries of the church attacked right at this point. If you don't know what a heresy is, it's uh, simply a false teaching that's not consistent with Scripture. There were those like the Docetists who they said, yeah, Jesus is fully God, but His manhood is only an illusion. They thought that the flesh was evil. They thought that true spirituality was only spiritual and did not include the material world. Uh, and that salvation was in effect becoming so enlightened that you could escape this you know, evil material world. They said that the divine Christ could not inhabit evil flesh, uh, that his manhood was only an illusion. And to that we must say, no, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He has a divine nature and a human nature in one person. There were those like the Ebionites who said that uh, God is God, God is one, and Jesus is nothing more than a special prophet from God, much like the Muslims today. To them we say, no, yes, Jesus was a, a human prophet, but he was much more than that. He's the eternal Son of God. Now, you don't have to remember the Ebionites and the Docetists, uh, but it is certainly good to know the tragic mistakes that people have made in the past so they're not repeated uh, in the present. This is not a small issue. It's no accident that Jesus being fully God and fully man was the focus of Satan's attacks throughout the first few centuries because without Jesus being fully God and fully man, we have no salvation. I'm going to explain that more in a minute. Uh, But before I do, I want us to think about one other thing from our passage. Something that we've heard plenty of times. But three times in our passage it says that Mary was a virgin. Twice in verse 27, again in verse 34. Now, if you've been around the church at all, you've heard that. uh, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. But I think it's often those things that we've heard the most that we tend to neglect you know, maybe don't think about as much, think we've got it licked, heard that enough, uh, but still there are riches here worth mining. So let's think about it a little bit. What can we learn from the virgin birth? Um, Again, we see Jesus' humanity and divinity on display. He was born of a woman, yet conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully man, fully God. But what is the significance of being born of a virgin? Anyone want to give that a shot? Very good. To bypass original sin. So, the Bible teaches that there are two representative, uh, what we would call representative heads of the human race. Who are they? Adam and Jesus. Adam and Jesus. So we know that when Adam sinned in the garden, (coughs) the entire human race fell into sin. He represented us. When the representative makes a decision, he makes the decision for the whole team. Uh, We were guilty of sin in Adam. And then that sin has been passed down through the generations to every person through conception. Psalm 51.5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we sin because we are sinners. We became sinners in Adam, and that sin nature is passed to every human being at conception. Well, think about the uh, problem that this created for mankind. 
our sin separates us from God, and before we even take our first breath outside the womb, we are contaminated in sin. Now, God requires that we be perfect, spotless, sinless, holy, and righteous to be in fellowship with Him. And yet, we're born in sin. Worse yet, conceived in sin. Born separated from God. And then when we're born, even our best works are sin-soaked. Which means that no human being could ever work his way back into favor and fellowship with God. Unless unless God sent another representative who would obey Him where Adam sinned. But to start, He would have to bypass that sin transfer at conception. So, Jesus was not conceived in sin. He was conceived in holiness by the Holy Spirit. And then He lived a perfect, spotless, sinless, holy, and righteous life in our place as our representative. Not only that, but He died a perfect, spotless, sinless, holy, and righteous, sacrificial death to satisfy God's punishment for sin. He didn't have to die. He chose to die in our place for our sin. So, where Adam's sin was credited to all people and then transferred through conception, Jesus' holiness and righteousness is credited to all who believe in Him and transferred through faith. I said a minute ago that it is no accident that being fully God and fully man was a major focus of Satan's attacks through the first few centuries because without Jesus being fully God and fully man, we have no salvation. He was born of a woman, fully human because God required human obedience for fellowship with Him and human sacrifice to pay for human sin. And yet, only God Himself could meet the requirements that God demands to be in fellowship with Him. Perfect, spotless, sinless, holy, righteous. So Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin, fully God and fully man. He did not inherit our sin nature at conception, and He continued His sinless, holy, righteous, spotless life all the way to the cross where He made full and final payment for our sin. It was a payment that humanity owed to God, but that only God Himself could pay. Alright, any thoughts or questions about that so far? Christian might be able to give a better definition, but isn't, isn't the definition of a cult an organization that's got Jesus wrong? They, they either mess up his, his divinity or his humanity or both. Uh, I'm thinking of the Mormon church. Yeah. I've never... uh, Yeah, but that would be precisely... If there's anywhere we have to get it right, it would be in regard to who Jesus is and, uh, you know, what He's done on our behalf. So... I guess would it be more helpful maybe to refer to that as a heresy instead of a cult? Only because if you... I mean, like a cult in my mind is like a... a, uh, I don't know, irrational devotion to a thing that usually ends up in people harming themselves or whatever. And mm-hmm. that may be, in earthly terms, that may or may not be the case with the Mormon church, but certainly in eternal terms it is, I guess yeah. you could say. But, I, but definitely I think heresy is even more specifically cor- correct probably to use, right? 
Uh, either way, you're describing someone outside of the uh, true fellowship in Christ. And so, yeah, maybe one is more pointed than the other, but, um, you know, when the church would pronounce a heretic, they were saying, you know, to go with them and identify with them is to place yourself outside of Christ. So, Okay, so we're talking about the incarnation when God became a man, and there's a few things I want us to think about. And then we'll be done. Uh, number one, back to the docetists. Does anybody remember? I know that was like ten minutes ago, but does anybody remember uh, what they said? There you go. Jesus was fully God, but his manhood was an illusion. <clears throat> they believed that the material world is evil, and uh, they could not imagine that a holy God would pollute himself with such evil. <clears throat> now, the incarnation speaks to that in a couple different ways. First, we grant that the material world was flooded with sin and corrupted in the fall, uh, the effects of which are often more damning than we realize. But God made a way to inhabit the material world without inheriting sin. And He inhabited the world to redeem it and rescue it uh, from sin. The second way that the Incarnation speaks to this is it shows us the value that God places on the material world, uh, the world that He created. When sin contaminated His creation, He didn't wash His hands of it and say, we're going to just do this whole spiritual thing apart from this material world. He entered into this material world because He so greatly valued His creation. Fully man and fully God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a woman, to redeem it and rescue it and restore it. You know, the picture that we get of the end is not salvation apart from the material world, but it is the material world redeemed and restored and recreated uh, in Christ. So, you know, God, we can learn from the incarnation that God values His creation um, as opposed to, you know, working apart from it as though it's evil. Uh, another thing to think about, <clears throat> there are those that struggle, maybe more than others, to believe that God is going to stick with you until the end. Call it a lack of assurance. Um, you know, maybe your sin is just always before you and you can't ever get your eyes off of it, but you just really struggle to believe that God is going to stick it out with you until the end. And I think we have to learn to argue with ourselves in light of the Incarnation. We're arguing from the greater to the lesser. So if the eternal Son of God, who created the world and all that's in it, left His authority in heaven to subject Himself to becoming a human being, even to the point of dying on a cross as a human being in order to save me from my sin, don't I think... If He was willing to go through that, that He's going to persevere with me until the end? Because frankly, He's already done the heavy lifting. He's already humbled Himself to become a man even more to dying on a cross. And we can argue with ourselves in light of that, He's going to stick with me to the end. Uh, or how about this? <clears throat> if God has already made a way to deal with my biggest problem, which was my sin problem with Him... Don't I think that God can make a way to deal with my lesser problems? 
Now, that doesn't mean to make light of our lesser problems, but they are lesser than our sin problem with God, which is the greatest problem that anyone could ever have. So whether it be a struggling marriage or sickness or loneliness or uh, an inability to forgive or whatever it is that troubles me, we argue with ourselves from the greater to the lesser. So when we see or hear about that baby in a manger this Christmas, I don't know what we normally think of, but it's not supposed to just be cute and sentimental. He is the bedrock of our hope. So talk to yourself in light of the Incarnation. And every time you see that or hear that in a song, God loved me so much that He sent His only Son to become a man to live and die in my place for my sins. If Jesus loved me so much that He was willing to leave heaven, to become a man, to die for me, He's not going to leave me now. No matter how unworthy I am. This whole thing does not depend on me being worthy. We are not worthy. He alone is worthy. And if God became a man to deal with my biggest problem, which was my sin, surely He can help me deal with my lesser problems. Whether my loneliness or sickness or difficult marriage miserable job, whatever it is that troubles me. Uh, Next, remembering the incarnation leads us into a deeper relationship with Christ. You know, the book of Hebrews calls Jesus our sympathetic high priest. Uh, Not only has He made full atonement for our sin and brought us into the presence of God as our high priest, but Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be tempted. It says that He was tempted in every way that we've been tempted. He's been tempted in every way that you can be tempted, yet He never sinned. Which means that He saw the full range of every temptation. You know, we don't often see the full range of the temptation because we give in to it before we get to the end of it. As you resist temptation, draw near to Christ. And what you'll find is not only is there always mercy and grace in your time of need, you'll also find your Lord and Savior who sympathizes with your weaknesses. He knows that temptation. He knows the fullness of that temptation. And He is glad to help us through it. Remembering the Incarnation helps us deepen our relationship with Christ. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be lonely. He knows what it is to be grieved about something. Uh, Not only does He know the full range of temptation, He knows the full range of human emotion, and yet without sin. And uh, next, meditating on the Incarnation leads me to follow Jesus according to His example. So this kind of speaks back to where... I can go and being burdened by it all and just, you know, kind of wanting it to pass. But um, He entered into my disaster and forgave my sin in order to put things back together. Uh, He pursued me despite me. So, my tendency is just to slide through the holidays being burdened by it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of difficult people in my family Uh, It starts with me. You know, I'm often a lot more difficult than I realize. 
But I can either view that in the flesh or I can view that in the Spirit through the lens of the Incarnation. Thank God Jesus didn't try to avoid me and all of my sin and difficulty. And He calls me to follow Him entering into other people's difficulty and sin. Uh, I think we can tend to think we'll kind of preserve our sanity and happiness if we can just keep a distance from it all, wherever the dysfunction is. But honestly, I think that's thinking more like a docetist than a Christian. Our joy is in being saved in Christ and in following Him according to His example. God came to dwell with us. He entered into the tragedy of our lives to redeem and rescue and restore. Uh, We don't enter in the exact same way, but we are agents of that redemption and rescue and restoration. Uh, So I think it's a good reminder not to try to avoid the difficulty, but to lean into it, to kiss it on the mouth, and uh, our joy is in following Him, even if that is into particularly difficult relationships. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this day, Lord, and we thank You for Your Son. Uh, We thank You that You sent Your Son to become a man. We thank You that You entered in with us, uh, that You did not wash Your hands of us, Lord. Um, We thank You that You made a way uh, that humanity could satisfy You, and You did so in Your Son. Uh, Lord Jesus, we know that You were conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, We know that You persisted in holiness throughout Your life, and we know You sacrificed Yourself on our behalf. And Lord, we will never exhaust, uh, we'll never be able to thank You enough, and yet it is our joy to do that for all eternity. Uh, Lord, we pray that You would help us to follow You according to Your ways, Uh, help us to enter in with others, help us to not avoid the sin and the difficulty, but to uh, lean into it and get in the thick of it as agents of your redemption and restoration. Uh, Lord, we're dependent on your strength to do that. We ask that you would uh, fill our hearts with your love uh, to love you and love others and to truly rejoice and celebrate in the great gift that you've given us at Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name. All right, we have a few more minutes for those who have questions or thoughts. About that. Anyone? Anyone? Um, One other thought, and maybe you're like, golly, does he really have a bad fan. I mean, I think I just have a sin problem and, you know, I'm just selfish and so I struggle in, you know, with some difficult relationships. But uh, I'll say this, particularly for those of you who are married, um, with the holidays, things get busier, more stressful. Things in the home can be more sensitive. People get defensive about their side of the family. Uh, you know, the other side thinks that side's crazy or whatever it is. But uh, I just, in my experience, there can be more conflict at home, particularly in the marriage. Um, 
let us be mindful to fight the conflict the way Jesus did. He didn't wait on us to humble ourselves. He humbled Himself. And He didn't have anything to do with the conflict in the first place. Uh, We did all that. So, it's just a reminder. Humble yourself. Confess your sin often. Don't wait on the other person. Uh, Fight the conflict like Jesus did. Anyone else? Yeah. Well, he enables us to have joy in the midst of the in the midst of the chaos. You know, um, there's the passage he makes a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You know, I mean, it's like this this conflict rages on, and yet we feast and rejoice in the Lord. Um, so it's kind of this. We're just able to find joy in Him in the middle of the conflict. Anyone else? All right. Still got that. What's it? Tryptophan? Is that a real thing? No, it's a myth. We concluded that it's just because you eat too much. Is it a myth? How about that? Learn something new every day. That's right. I believe you. (laughs) All right. Y'all have a good day.